Hey everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years. Now we answer your questions, we bring you the news, but I like to bring you behind the scenes to interview the people who are actually doing the research, making the news. And today I'm joined by Dr. Martin Barstow. Dr. Barstow, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. The question I always ask, who are you? What do you do? Okay, so, so I'm Professor of Astrophysics and Space Science at the University of Leicester, where I've been for more than 40 years now. I've had my entire scientific career in Leicester. I, I went there to do space research in 1979, and I, I never really escaped, and I'm still doing space research. Uh, and it's wonderful to be working on Gaia data. Right, and, and that's how I, I think your university put out a press release talking about the new Gaia release and you were one of the people who had a role in this and I've been just ranting and raving about Gaia for years now and was especially excited about data release three and so I thought it would be good to get someone from the team here to answer every single one of the questions that I that I have about it I'll do my best yeah so you know, my audience is very familiar with Gaia and, and sort of what its role is in astrometry. So you know, you can keep the conversation fairly technical, but, but what is in data release three? So I guess, why is it different from data, re data release two, and the early data release three, I think is the best way to look at it. Yeah. So, so those first two data releases were really about where are all the things in the sky? So it's measuring the positions of all the objects, measuring parallaxes in particular, so that we can compute the distances, as well as doing very accurate photometry in the Gaia bounds. Uh, and so that that was really the pretty much all the data that came out of uh, those two releases. Uh, EDR3 being an improvement on, on DR2 with more objects, and of course. EDR3 took us up to about 1.8 billion objects, which I still find yeah. pretty mind-blowing, really, that you can actually measure the distances, uh, positions to such a large number of objects. It's such a vast quantity of data. And, and the and the EDR3, that was that was an incremental release that came in between two and three. There was like two years ago. Yeah, right. uh, fairly. It was, it was much improved data quality, though. So it wasn't so much about the, ex, the increased number of objects. It was more, more about getting the, the errors down, making the quality of the catalog much better than for DR2, which means you can use use the, the data for many more things. So there's a so the big difference then going to the full DR3 catalog is what you might call the added data products. So things that were not available in any of the earlier data releases. And a lot of this focuses on the spectroscopy that we have available from Gaia. And Gaia does spectra in two ways. It has very low resolution spectra uh, that are taken through the, the normal CCD. So, so whereby Gaia has uh, filters that define the BP and the RP bands and the G band, it also has uh, a couple of grisms that disperse the spectra of the objects that it sees as those objects travel through the last row of CCDs in the instrument. All right, uh, thank you. Well, I, I'm definitely going to need to have that a little better explained. Um, yeah, yeah. So, 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 um, a grism is a, a bit like a grating. So, it takes the light and it spreads it out into the spectral components. Right, it's a grating uh, prism. Yeah, and yeah. we do that for every object that passes through the Gaia field of view. And Gaia, Gaia is an array of about 256 CCDs. So it's a very large area. And, and one row, the very end, is devoted to obtaining these low-resolution spectra. So that's one set of data. They're called BP and RP spectra because we get them in the two BP and RP bands uh, of the Gaia photometric system. Um, and their resolution is about, I guess, about 10 or 20 angstroms or so. So they're really quite crude compared mm. to what you might expect. 
but they do give more information than just the broadband photometry. So that's a, a powerful tool. We'll talk about that in a little bit more. Yeah, and just to sort of explain to that people, right? like photometry is the way to determine the chemical fingerprint of the star. What are yeah. some of the elements that you're seeing in the outer atmosphere of, of the star? Yeah. Uh, then the other way we get spectra is from an instrument called the radio velocity spectrometer. So, so that's a higher resolution instrument. Uh, it covers a fairly narrow band uh, that's centered around the sort of calcium H and K lines that you get in the spectra of most stars. Uh, and it does what it says on the tin, really, radial velocities. So its aim was to measure the space motions of stars towards and away from us. Right. And so differing with astrometry, you're measuring essentially the side to side motion as they yeah. either stars are moving, you know, sideways across the sky. But with that mm -hmm. radial velocity measurement, you're able to also measure whether these stars are coming towards us or, or away from us. Right. So it gives you that extra dimension of movement, which is a very powerful tool because you get the full space motion of the uh, objects that you're looking at. And that hadn't uh, been also, released before, right? Like and it hadn't been released before. Right. Processing all, processing Gaia completely is a massive, massive task. And uh, you know, I, I appreciate that you're you know, happy to talk to me uh, as somebody who's worked on Gaia data. But what you've got to remember is that I'm one person among several thousand people who've all been spending the last decades of their lives working on processing and analyzing this data and creating the data products that we released to to the entire astronomical community yeah so so each step of processing requires new programs uh it requires careful validation of the data uh, mm -hmm. and we really need to understand it uh before we can let it out to the wider world because it's got to be very robust and reliable so that people can just take it and use it without worrying too much yeah. about the data quality. So, so that's so, why these things haven't been released before. We've had right. the data, but we just haven't been able to process it. Right. So, you, so you, you've added the, the photometry data, which tells us what the stars are made of. You've added the radial velocity data. What else have you added this time around? So, so the spectroscopy, the low resolution spectroscopy that we produce it is available, but uh, we thought it would be a really good idea to actually provide some of that, that data in a, a pre-digested form. If you get the raw spectrum, then you have to do a certain amount of processing to turn that into useful information. Uh, and that requires extra tools, extra software that astronomers would need. Hmm. What we've done is taken the spectra uh, and we've created what we call synthetic photometry. So if you think about the main Gaia bands are the Gaia photometry, the G, the BP and the RP bands. That's, that's the three bands you get from the main Gaia survey. Then we've taken those low resolution spectra that we get from the instrument and we've essentially carved them up into lots of different chunks that artificially represent standard photometric systems which people may who listen to this podcast may may be familiar with so for example the johnson photometric system we're all familiar with has the the uvvri uh, nomenclature which denote ultraviolet violet blue etc and, and, um, and the purpose of that is like like if you just hand me a spectra i'm gonna have to sit there with my computer and look at the spectra and look for the lines yeah. and try to go, oh, okay, yeah, it looks like there is carbon in the atmosphere of this yeah. star, uh, but you've done them all. And so now I can just run a database query and go show me all the stars that have these chemicals and, well, you, and not you, those you chemicals. Have to, you have to do a bit more than that. You can't access oh. the chemicals. <laughs> uh, although, I mean, we do, we are providing information about right. the chemicals makeup of the stars as part of the product right but, but if, if i know to... the spectra that i'm looking for i can yeah. just run a database query and all of the stars that meet my criteria will pop up yeah and you can get the ubvri colors right you can get the slow digital sky survey colors 
uh, and you can get uh, another system called right. J Plus, which is uh, developed in Spain, running uh, one of the telescopes in Spain that divides the band up into many smaller wavelength ranges. The idea of dividing the band up like this is that the smaller wavelength ranges give you a better handle on things like the composition. So if you if you want to look to see whether you've got uh, an atmosphere that's dominated by hydrogen, then the the very narrow bands will allow you to discriminate between atmospheres that have got a lot of hydrogen in and atmospheres which don't. Right. Uh, and you can do that for a lot of objects, whereas normally you'd have to go to a telescope and <laughs> yeah. spend lots and lots of observing time getting an individual spectrum of an object. And and that's that seems like a, like a a mind-bending difference for an astronomer. In the olden days, you would have to like look at a region of space that you thought was kind of interesting, look at the stars, figure out what which ones met your criteria. If you wanted to study a certain yeah. type of star, you had to find them for yourself because the universe is big and there's a lot of stars out there. And then you would start to try and analyze these stars. Yeah. But in this case, if you're looking for some kind of of star that's of interest to to your research, you just first thing you do is find them all in the Gaia data. And then you do your follow up observations. And you skipped the whole where are all these stars, they're all the list is ready to go for you. It's yeah, and in some cases, you don't need to do the follow up observations. because there's <laughs> right. enough information there. Uh, that's really part of the challenge. It's a sort of the, the challenge and beauty of Gaia, I suppose. I, I've spent a lot of my life studying white dwarf stars. That's my main scientific interest. Yeah. And I, I worked on the white dwarfs in the Gaia catalog. So you have to find those takes a lot of effort because they're fate. Uh, very hard to see. Uh, and before Gaia flew, we knew maybe about 20,000 white dwarfs in the galaxy. Uh, and the, those have been recovered mostly from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and, and similar things. Another and survey, yeah. And it's a huge effort to get 10,000 objects. And then you've got to go and observe them all and get spectra of them all and classify them all. Uh, and so it's quite hard to work on very large samples, whereas Gaia, you just go to the Gaia database, you, you can pull out 100,000 white dwarfs without blinking. Um, <laughs> Right. And then the whatever you're that, looking for, show yeah. me all the white dwarfs that are they're moving in this direction or show me. all. Yeah. yeah, it's like Google for the universe. It's amazing. Yeah. You still can't go and observe 100,000 white dwarfs at a ground based telescope because there are just not enough telescopes. Uh, and even if you were if, if you were lucky enough to get a lot of time on some of the ground based telescopes, you still can't observe very many of these. So so the synthetic photometry. Uh, and this broadband spectroscopy that we have, it's a really powerful tool. It's not as good as having a high resolution spectrum, never will be, but it gives you quite good quality information on every single one of those white dwarfs. How would that compare? I can go look for the ones that are hydrogen rich. Like if I had a telescope at my disposal and I wanted to be able to produce the same level of spectra that I can get from Gaia, what would it take? Would it be a one meter telescope, a four meter telescope? Uh, you could do it with quite a small telescope, mm. even for white dwarfs, but because you're, you're not dispersing the light. But yeah, a one meter telescope or two meter telescope would, would do quite nicely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for the brightest stars, it would start to struggle when you get down to the fainter ones because Gaia observes stars to 20th magnitude or so. And that's pretty faint, even for a large telescope. Uh, yeah, if I go and observe a white dwarf at a four meter telescope, I'll need it to be about 15th or 16th magnitude. Right, uh, right. Many fainter than that, I wouldn't be able to observe. So, so actually, that's a, that's a really good point you've made, is that uh, it's also about how deep you can go with a typical ground-based telescope. Yeah. In general, nobody's going to give me access to the Keck or to Gemini or to the VLT to right. observe a lot of white dwarfs that are very, very faint. And, and because you don't have a adaptive optic system on your one meter telescope, you are really severely limited while well, Gaia is out in space at L2 and yeah. doesn't have to deal with that pesky atmosphere. That's true. It's not so critical for doing spectroscopy, but certainly being in space makes a lot of difference yeah. to the spatial resolution that you get. All right. So what else was released in, in DR3? So, so I talked 
So we talked a little bit about the, the broadband spectroscopy. So let's come back to the uh, radial velocity spectrometer. So, so what do you get for knowing those radial velocities? Well, if the star that you're observing has a companion, then you see changes in the radial velocity as those two stars orbit their center of mass. And so, so you don't just see the star going away from you or conversely coming towards you. You actually see it going away from you and then coming back again. But that requires, uh, I mean, I'm assuming there's a certain amount of like longer term kind of time domain astronomy going on here where you're observing the star over some period of time. How is how does that work out as opposed to just, you know, taking a snapshot of the radio velocity and moving on to another so, star? So, so Gaia has been observing the sky all the time ever since it was launched in 2013. So, so every single object in the Gaia catalog has now been observed many, many times. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that we are only getting around to publishing the radio velocity data is that you need time to build up enough information to start to do things like work out what the orbits are. Because as you quite rightly point out, it takes time. So now we've had, well, you know, it's nine years, approaching nine years since Gaia started operations. So we've got a nine year baseline now on the radial velocities of every single object that we've observed. Right, All, almost uh, two billion stars. Yeah, I, I mean, the data quality for a lot of those isn't very good. Uh, because the RVS requires relatively bright objects to do mm, okay. signal to noise. So, we, so we're never going to get binary information on the 1.8 billion. But for example, in DR3, we're able to provide binary information on around about 400,000 objects. And how many of those would be new? Like never known? Most of them. Most, Most of, of them. them. So, so most of them. So, right. So, four hundred thousand objects that it turns out we thought were stars are actually binary stars. Yeah, I mean, we expected quite a lot of binary. Right, and of course. In rough statistics, you you sort of expect that every other star is a binary or a multiple star system. How sensitive but, you know, is that? Knowing that uh, and having the data that tells you what its physical characteristics are. It is something that has been very, really quite difficult, as you say. If you do that on a star by star basis, uh, you have to get, like observing my white dwarfs, you have to go to the telescope and you have to sit on that star for right. a, quite a long period of time, or you've got to have an observing campaign where you, you go rattle through maybe 20 or 30 objects a night and then you keep going back. Yeah, to yeah. I wonder if and that so, star is a binary object. Nope. Okay. And what about this one? Right. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, totally different. Yeah. So yeah. then what is the sensitivity? I and, mean, you know, we sort of think about it in terms of like meters per second for the star to be moving towards oh, a good us. Question. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Okay. Um, I, I, it's, it's not it's not at the sort of very high resolution. End. So like not so find planets. Few, yeah. So, well, we do. We have found a few planets. <laughs> uh, right. uh, so it's, uh, you know, the, the few meters per second uh yeah. as opposed to the submeter per second yeah um, i mean I, I think but, like i remember like like 51 peg was in the tens of meters per second but if you wanted to say find another earth you're looking at like 50 centimeters per second so we're yeah we're, we're, we're not going to be working at that that level but but there are a handful of uh objects that look like they're binaries but with planetary companions in particular, we found the white dwarf with a, a nine Jupiter mass object that's hmm. in orbit around it. Uh, small numbers of interesting, but very exciting, nevertheless, very exciting things. And there's likely to be more in there as people come through the data. These, these are just the extreme examples that have popped out. But it is interesting uh, to me that like, beyond just providing the radio velocity data, you're also making some conclusions about this stuff. So, so you could mm. just provide the, the radio velocity measurements for some, for some star, and then other astronomers could look at that data and say, yeah. Oh, that's a binary system, or Oh, that's a Jupiter nine Jupiter mass planet orbiting a white dwarf. But you've already done this data crunching got, yeah. to some extent part of the processing is is to generate the orbital information so for example we can determine the period of the orbit 
uh, and we can determine the masses of the components in some circumstances. It depends, as I'm sure you know, as an astronomer, a little bit what data you've got. If you can see uh, the lines from two stars, that gives you a much better solution than if you only see the line from a single star. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've got a whole mixture of, we've got double line spectroscopic binaries, we've got right. single line spectroscopic binaries, we've got uh, what, we, what we call orbital binaries in Gaia, where we just see the motion of the binary just from the astrometry. So we're actually detecting that these are binaries from their uh, space motion. Right. And so in this uh, case, so instead of the star moving towards us and away from us, we're seeing it make a little circle in the sky from the gravity the of its companion. And that's and that's we're able to measure. And and I guess it can also through the photometric data, you can see transits. We can and we do. <laughs> right. So so we've got four four effectively different methods of determining what's going on all at the same time. And uh, and also some of these objects are have got both yeah we see orbital uh, variations and spectroscopic variations at the same time so yeah. we, so that gives us even more precise information when we we can bring two different methods to bear uh and none, none of this is prejudged it's just what pops out of the data yep um keep going what <laughs> was there i mean i know there's a bunch of asteroids were released as well as part of this release yeah, I, I don't know much about the asteroids because right, okay. I'm not a solar system person. But but of course, Gaia is very good at seeing things moving in space, uh, and so it picks up. It just about picks up everything that you yeah. might yeah that might be out there. So so these are all exciting. Um, say it's it's not a very large number, but. Yeah. As we keep on combing through the data, we'll find more and more of these things. And so and it's a real treasure trove. Yeah, it, it really is. So, you know, we've talked about sort of like what's in the release. So I'd like to now talk about what have you learned? And so as an astronomer who specializes in, in, in white dwarfs, but just in, in general, what has this massive survey, like almost 2% of the galaxy at this point, what has this told us uh, about the galaxy that's new do you think or is it okay. too soon to tell uh, i mean, I mean firstly what i would say is it's it's very early days yeah to actually draw a lot of conclusions about this data release uh, um, one thing i think uh i should say is that people who work on gaia do not get any preferential access to the data except to process the data and make it available so so although i work on the gaia project um i've only really started to look at this data myself relatively recently so so i was involved in a couple of the papers uh one on the binaries and one on the, the synthetic photometry that came out alongside the publication but the rules of engagement for, for gaia scientists are that we can only write a very limited amount about the science because the principle of gaia is that everybody in the world has access to the data at the same time uh, and so nobody cool. gets an yeah. advantage by being part of the project. So I think it's a great thing. That, that free access to data, I think, is really important for astronomy. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like People are always quite shocked when they hear that, say, with Hubble or with James Webb or with other instruments, that the astronomers who requested the time on the telescope get a year to crunch their data before that data is publicly released. And it makes sense. Like you don't someone you don't want someone to scoop you yeah. on your own data, which has happened. Um uh there's some dwarf planets that were discovered <laughs> that that you know that someone had figured out where somebody else was was observing and then they checked the same place, found the planets and announced it, found the dwarf planets and announced it. So that can definitely happen. But in the case of a survey telescope, it's all the data released simultaneously to everyone and so nobody gets a first mover and you as people who are working on helping collate that data you have to be really careful and make sure that you don't try to don't get a jump start on that data yeah that's right the same and, time. And, and so so we're con we're restricted in what we can do in advance so so i can't tell you a huge amount about what we've yet learned yeah and i, I think th there are some of the key sort of results that have come out of it one, one of them is this a huge classification and quantification of the stellar neighborhood. 
that yeah, you can go and find out what all the stars are. We know a lot about the compositions. Uh, what that tells us, at the moment, I haven't really got much of a clue because somebody right. actually needs to look at these many hundreds of thousands of stars where we have spectral classifications and compositional information from the spectroscopy and actually start to look to see what it does tell us about the galaxy because you will see abundance gradients, abundance variations according to location. Um, but at this stage, we don't know what the actual answer is going to be. Uh, we know about the movement of all the stars in the local neighborhood uh, and how things, bits of the galaxy move in a slightly different way to the others, you know, might bit of a sort of warping of the edge of the galaxy, that kind of thing. But again, somebody actually has to take all that data and then try to interpret it with an understanding of the galactic dynamics, which is an area that I'm not at all an expert well, so, in. So then instead of answers, what are some questions that you have? So, so the questions are about, you know, where, you know, how, is, how is the galaxy constructed is one of the big questions that Gaia was actually built to answer. Uh, we certainly don't have the answer yet, but what you can do with Gaia is track all the things that are that have been accumulated by the galaxy over cosmic history. So if you, if you think about the general idea of how galaxies are built up, essentially by eating their neighbors. Uh, and so, so as you pull in the little galaxies, the satellite galaxies, what happens is that they get pulled into streams of object of objects that start to orbit around the center of our own galaxy. So, so they'll be spread around a huge amount of space. Uh, and if you just observed them, took images, you would never see them. You'd never be able to find them. But when you know all about the motion of these stars, you can look for stars that are all moving in the same way, not necessarily physically located in the same part of space, because you can imagine a stream might cover the whole visible sky that you can see from the ground. Uh, and it might be 100,000 stars, but they'd be spread out of such a large area, you can never isolate them. But when you look at the Gaia database, you'll see how oh, well, this 100,000 stars spread out over this whole area of space I'm looking at, well, they're all traveling in the same direction. Right. And um, with the spectroscopic data, they're, they have similar chemical fingerprints. Chemical, chem yeah chemical fingerprints and so you can start to disentangle and by looking at the dynamics you can also perhaps think a bit about the history and this is where the galactic dynamics people have to come in and put in put their models in and try to make predictions about what you're going to see so in principle you can understand the entire history of how the milky way galaxy was constructed oh. That's amazing. You could just like unravel its meals one at a time. One at a time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, incredible. And what about white dwarfs? What questions do you have yeah, about I, white dwarfs? I was going to come to that because white dwarfs are also very important from under, about understanding galactic history, but in, a, but in a slightly different way. So, so white dwarfs are you know, the end stage of the lifetimes of most stars. It might be the least spectacular way of ending a star's life, but that's what happens to 90% of stars. Only a small fraction actually produce supernova explosion. Uh, and actually, they're also responsible for enriching the environment uh, in the Milky Way. Because the production of a white dwarf, uh, what the star that produces the white dwarf undergoes, undergoes mass loss. And so, so it's another way of recycling elements, uh, particularly important things like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, which are important elements for life, back into the interstellar medium. And so understanding where the white dwarfs came from is, is really quite important. Uh, and we can construct something that we call the white dwarf luminosity function, which is essentially a measure of the brightness of white dwarfs as they are now uh, in space. And so, so we basically find how many are really, really bright, the hottest ones, and how many are really, really faint, the, the, the coolest ones, uh, and look for all the others in between. Uh, and that luminosity function is essentially a number density of white dwarfs 
as a function of temperature and temperature for a white dwarf equals age right uh, right because when a white dwarf form there's no more nuclear fusion going on so a white dwarf is a basically a hot glowing thing that cools down uh over billions of years and i had so, recently uh sort of i was working on a piece and i had to look at the projected age of, of white dwarfs and the range was actually pretty large. It was somewhere between like maybe yeah. 15 billion and eight, one quadrillion years. Do we have a better sense of how long these things take to cool down to the background temperature of the universe? Uh, oh, far longer than that. Well, longer <laughs> than a quadrillion. Yeah. Okay. I mean, to get down to the background temperature, you talk, I mean, I, I've never done that calculation, but you're talking about getting down to three degrees Kelvin. Yeah. Uh, the cool, the coolest white dwarfs we know about are maybe around three thousand, three and a half thousand degrees. Uh, and the reason that we don't see any cool on that is the universe just frankly isn't old enough right. for the white dwarfs to have cooled down to to lower temperatures. So, so they they're good cosmic clocks from that sense. So, so the if you find the coolest ones in the galaxy, that gives you a, an age limit on the galactic disk. That's really interesting. Um, Complicating factor, though, is that how fast a white dwarf cools depends on how massive it is. Because it's a surface area effect. And the more massive the white dwarf, uh, and this is a bit counterintuitive, it's about physics and degenerate matter, but the more massive a white dwarf, the smaller it is. So kind you've like, got like Jupiter, like, like a gas giants, the more massive they become. Like if Jupiter got more mass, it would actually shrink. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, and so, so the age of a white dwarf is dependent on its temperature, but also its radius. So, so you, you've got a so the white dwarf luminosity function has embedded in it uh, a huge amount of information about how white dwarfs are born and cool, but it's extremely complicated. It's it, it's like taking and life of an individual white dwarf and plotting it out and then, okay, and then taking the life of another white dwarf and plotting it out and then adding all those together. Uh, and that produces the final luminosity function, which has got bumps and wiggles in it. And those bumps and wiggles may indicate phases of star formation in the galaxy, where you get an increase in the number of stars, uh, where you've got star formation going on. And then and then another wiggle might in indicate when star formation is slowing down. So you could, so Gaia is letting us trace the merger history, but by measuring the white dwarfs out there and checking their age, you could almost measure periods of active and, and less star formation. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So you could just Absolutely. unroll and then try to, and then I guess there's probably going to be some match between the white dwarf the star formation and when the mergers happened that would allow you to sort of double check each other. Maybe uh, yeah. that's another step that I don't think any of us have actually thought of yet. There you go. We're, we're we'll still be, struggling with the first bits. <laughs> we'll, we'll collaborate on the paper then. Um, yeah. Because it, because it feels like, you know, if, if you are, if you're seeing a bunch of, of, of peaks in temperature ranges on white dwarfs, then, then maybe they formed in certain eras. And yeah. if you can match them up with with tidal tails, then but it, it, it is a very very complicated superposition of lots of yeah. information. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, and disentangling it all is a huge inversion problem. Um, <laughs> right. where, where Gaia gets us, apart from the precision information on the white dwarfs, which is really important, you know, better photometry, uh, more accurate magnitudes, and the distance. The distance is absolutely critical because yeah. most of the time we don't know how far away the white dwarfs are to any maybe 10 20 percent at best so gaia immediately brings that down to a percent or so and suddenly all the white dwarfs that you know about you also know how far away they are and that means you know how luminous they are yeah uh, instantly uh so so you get all this extra information but it's also the number of white dwarfs yeah I was come back close yeah cycle back on where we started we had, knew about about 20,000 white dwarfs before Gaia now we're we've got several hundred thousand white dwarfs that's amazing yeah uh, and you know PhD student who's working with me at the moment he's working through trying to 
generate a new luminosity function from 100,000 white dwarfs, which would be the largest sample of white dwarfs that's ever been used in this kind of calculation. Yeah, yeah, really fascinating. All right, so so now Guy is still doing great. Uh, there's no issues with the spacecraft. So it's, and I know there's at least two more official data releases that are coming, DR4 and DR5. What mm. can we expect from those releases? So you won't see much uh, particularly new in the way of data products. Uh, you know, DR3 is a, is a real landmark in the sense of um, what's new, particularly around the spectroscopy that we've been talking about. What you'll get from the later, do, later releases is more information in the sense of the baseline will get longer. Or, so if you're doing any kind of variability study uh, or you're looking at binary orbits, you, you will get more data. Uh, and it, it's probably worth saying that at the moment, DR3 is only publishing data from maybe two or three years back. So the, the whole processing timescale for actually generating the data from Gaia means that you have to start processing the data about two years before you can actually release the catalogue. So, right. so DR3 only refers to the first five years, four or five years of <laughs> right. operations. So not uh, the, the most recent three years. Not the most recent things. Wow. And so, yeah, and so by the time we get to DR4 and DR5, which is supposed to be the final release, which will be post-mission, uh, then we'll have extended that baseline out to maybe 12 years, uh, which makes a lot of difference to the precision of binary orbits and even maybe detecting ones that we haven't yet detected because we'll be pr probing a, a, a different parameter space with longer orbital periods that we can't currently do. So, so we'll be extending the whole database uh, and increasing the precision and also improving the way we do the processing. Every time we do a new d data release, we, we've done something to the processing to improve it yeah, uh, we increase the data quality from the additional observations, but also from from the how we how we handle the data. Uh, and so, those are the things that will come, and quite quite away in the future. I mean, DR four isn't going to be for two or three years, mm -hmm. uh, and probably won't appear. I guess by that time, Guy will probably have come to the end of its operations. No, it won't. It'll be fine. It's going to be great. It's going to last forever. Just like my dog. Well, we'll run out of gas. No, no, won't. The life-limiting item is the station keeping gas. But yeah, same as same as James Webb. Maybe right. You may be right because people are awfully clever at getting around these problems. Yeah. Um, so then, like one of the things that was originally predicted was that Gaia would be able to find planets through astrometry, and probably a lot of them, and. And that was one of the things that I was expecting on data release three. Mm. Is is that data not in there yet, or is it not capable of well, finding so the, them? Some of it, some of it is, uh, but it's in small numbers at the moment. And I think it's down to it's probably down to precision uh, and refinement of the the orbits and the solutions. And we we haven't published all the data because we've had to do quality selection on this data. It's no, no point me giving you um, a binary solution for a binary system that isn't robust. I could right. give you a binary solution for a lot more stars than we've actually published this time. Uh, but we don't believe that the data right. quality is, is appropriate to release that data at this stage. So I could search uh, the database, find all of the binary planets, find all the planets, and and then do my follow-up observations and they weren't there and then i blame you yes right right yeah. so, so or somebody else or somebody else sure yeah but better to have the planets that you're certain but i mean like it's capable of finding them yes it is yeah and and but it, it, is, but it, is, at, but it is at the extreme end of the capability of gaia right when you think about it i mean the challenge the challenges we've got yeah if i can I, Pick a couple of examples out. So there are uh, four or five planets in DR3. There's a planet orbiting a white dwarf, and then there are things that 
might or might not be planets. Uh, and that's where it gets tricky because they might be a bit big to be planets, mm. but we don't really have enough information at the moment to completely constrain the mass because the mass function is dominated by the, by the, the, the star. Uh, and you're looking at something very small, so it's got big error bars on it. Uh, and you can't actually see it because it's too faint. All you're, you're extrapolating this from is the motion of, of, the, of the star itself. So there's still lots of uncertainties in there. I, I think the, there'll be more coming out. Uh, so there's, there's three or four that I think are pretty certain, yeah. in, in the, including my favorite, which is the, the non-Jupiter mass planet orbiting a white dwarf, right. which is now the, only the third known such system. Uh, and only the th and the closest one to us because it's only about ten parsecs away. But astrometry as a methodology, because it allows you to see planets that are not directly lined up between us and the and the star, mm. it opens up the rest of the planets. Like up until this point, almost all the planets that we're seeing, they're either detected with the transit method, so they're they're passing in front of the star, or they're detected yeah. with the radio velocity, so they're <laughs> mostly passing in front of the star. But you but that's only like one percent of planetary systems out there. You know, are 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 this, but we want these, right? Yeah. So and, that, and those are the ones that we're starting to see. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you think and that, be... you know, another two years plus of observation, plus going through all the data, do you think those number of planets that we know of will go up by orders of magnitude from? I, I, I would be surprised Gaia. if they did. Yeah. Uh, I'm not particularly uh, concerned that we won't see them. It's just a question of really sort of plugging away at the data quality yeah uh, and the validation of the data when it comes out so does like what are there any other observations either through that are that are like they're in there you think but they're not good enough yet so you can't put your you you can't like put it in the database and let people search for it because they'll they'll complain um but what do you think is what other sort of large classifications of data do you think might be in in the uh, in the guy information that could be released i i can't think of anything that's okay. particularly new in addition to what we come out as I, as I was saying it will be about growing these catalogs right uh, growing the catalogs of binary systems uh improving the data we have on the binary systems that we've already published um so there'll be many more to come it, it really is a sort of tip of the iceberg stuff uh, at the moment, it's taken a, a huge effort just to validate the, the few hundred thousand. Uh, so so right. once we're getting into the millions, it becomes a, a significantly more challenging task. Uh, and that's and the, these you know, planets, these astrometrically detected planets are going to be in there, but they're at the very difficult end of that validation. Right. Um, and so w do you have a sense of how many stars do you think you'll end up with classifying because the you know we're at 1.8 billion today do you think that number will go up significantly or just better data on those stars i i think i think the 1.8 billion isn't going to get much bigger um i think i think we know we know what's out there we've got measurements in most of those things we improve the data it may it may grow a little but no, I, I think the 1.8 billion is it yeah. uh, for our, our segment of the galaxy. But I think what we'll find is that we will grow the number of things, number of special systems like binary systems, uh, you know, three or four times maybe more uh, Cepheid variables will be detected, more transits will be detected, because obviously a transit is a you know, statistical thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there'll be some systems that haven't transited while guy has been observing so uh because of the length of period so so we'll be pick up more and more of these things and and there's you know even just on a, a simple extrapolation of doubling the time baseline we're going to double those numbers now guy is a sequel to the hipparchus mission which again was a european space agency mission and it cataloged like merely hundreds of thousands of stars mm -hmm. And Gaia is doing billions of stars. 
Are there plans in the works for a follow on mission to Gaia? It seems like such a critical kind of science. Yes, there, to be there, doing. there are already, uh, although I, I suspect I'll be long retired when it actually happens because of the time scale for things. So there's something called, so it's got the working title Gaia NIR, Gaia for near, Gaia near infrared, which is, is, is trying to sort of make use of a different part of the spectrum to uh, improve the sensitivity in certain areas. Uh, Cooler objects. The, yeah, it gets you cooler objects. Uh, it allows you to see uh, cool companions, things like that, that Gaia is not particularly sensitive to. Um, and therefore, it, it will be much more powerful for doing planetary work. So it will extend what you can do with planets. Right. Uh, so it would be like, a, I mean, I sort of, I think about um, survey instruments that that were observing in the in near infrared to find uh, asteroids, brown dwarfs, things yeah. things like that. But the same thing, surveying them as opposed to targeting them individually. Yeah, because uh, that's 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 why Gaia, Gaia sort of runs out. I suppose uh, one of the things that I. I've noticed in the work that I'm doing myself is that when you want to find faint objects in the red, it's not very good. You're, you know, the completeness, for example, for things like end dwarfs and brown dwarfs is really quite poor. So, so although we get pretty much 100% of all stars that are sitting around, you know, similar to the sun's spectral type, you know, the, the FG, the K stars, Right. Uh, when you get into the sort of cooler end of things, fainter magnitudes, you start not to see, you know, you're not seeing all the stars. You're missing some because they're too faint, but still quite nearby. I mean, it's kind of the same problem when you stand outside and you look at the sky. The stars yeah. that you're seeing are actually all really rare, bizarre, very bright stars. They're not yeah. a, a proper they're not, census of they're what not the normal looks ones. like. Yeah, yeah, they're not the normal ones. Yeah. And so... Gaia only has a fairly small radius of the red dwarfs that it actually knows about while it can see much brighter stars out to thousands of light years away. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So, so the Gaia NIR, are there any plans to do just the same thing as Gaia, but just use next generation technology to do even better astrometry? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be, plenty next generation technology in Gaia NIR. So it will be doing a better job on everything else as well. Um, you, to some extent, you're limited by how big you can build the spacecraft. Uh, you know, what limits Gaia spatially is the size of the mirror, like any telescope. Uh, and I think it's very unlikely that we're ever going to build a, a Gaia mission that's eight meters aperture well the, the fairing of a starship is nine meters yeah. so yeah. so it's but i think if we're going to build, build those size optics those are going to be for things like louvoir type mm -hmm. telescopes where we go and search for exo earths and things like that so so there's going to be a trade-off in terms of cost benefit on aperture and what esa can afford because it's this is likely to be a european space agency mission and what you can fit into your billion euros or billion and a half euros, whatever the cost cap is when this comes around. So, 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 so I think there's there's a limit to how far you can push it. You could, in theory, push the technology a long way by mm -hmm. doing it with very large apertures. But I think persuading people to spend the money is going to be a bit of a tall order. Well, I will do my part because <laughs> it, it it's amazing the number of stories that that cross my desk that come out of Gaia and and it almost now has its tendrils into almost every paper that I see. It's kind of amazing that someone will do yeah, doing I, some I, piece of research and go, and we also use this data from Gaia. I'm like, of course you yeah. did because it was right there. You just went, typed it into the data, but you, you, you I, 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 see that, I see that as well. Just before the pandemic kicked in, I went to, a, I ran a conference in Hawaii on White Dwarfs uh, and every single paper in that conference talked about Gaia. Yeah. And I, Wow, this is this is how pervasive Gaia is. It's it's getting into everything, and that's what it was built for. Uh, we sort of knew that was going to happen, but I don't think anything quite prepared us for just the depth of the impact. Uh, it's to me, it's like a tidal wave 
going through astronomy. And if you look at the publication statistics, I don't know if you've seen those. Uh, I've worked on Hubble for most of my career and I love that telescope. It's just a fantastic instrument. Uh, and the publication rate on Hubble is about a thousand papers a year. Uh, and it's ramped up since Hubble was launched pretty steadily and it's still going up. Um, well, the publication rate for Gaia is 1,600 papers a year. Yeah. And that's been achieved in the three, four years since DR2 came out. Well, and, and the magic is a survey with modern computers. And I think you see the same thing with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. You see the same thing with Gaia. We're about to see the same thing with Vera Rubin. When it comes online, it's going to be the same thing again. There's something really wonderful about having these surveys running at the same time that you have these high power telescopes that can go and do follow on observations. They're, they, they're both necessary. And if we don't have these surveys, then, then we're having to do things the slow, difficult way. And I'm just such a fan of surveys at this point. Yeah. Well, me too. I, I started my career off with a survey. It was called the Rosat Whitefield camera. Right. And first survey in the extreme ultraviolet uh, and coupled to uh, the Rosa x-ray survey. So I, I really do get surveys. We, we certainly living in a survey era. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, um, and you can almost imagine no limit to it that, that you, the, the bigger the surveys, the more interesting anomalies pop out of the surveys that then suggest follow on observations. And, it's really exciting because it's it's hard now so much about the universe is is known and observed. It's very rare to find stuff that no one has ever looked at before. And yet the surveys bring them to the surface. Yeah, and it's, that, and it's those rarities that potentially give you the clues to the underlying yeah. physics that you're trying to disentangle. Yeah, so good. So good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. If people want to follow your work, what's the best way to do that? Uh, well, just Google me and uh, go to my webpage. Yeah, and Google, Google Scholar. Google Scholar. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, Dr. Barso, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Congratulations on, on DR3. I look forward to DR4, DR5, and then the Gaia 2.0. And, yeah, and so, so, and so, so, so do I. I yeah. I, I'm hoping that Gaia, Gaia DR5 will happen before I do retire. <laughs> I'm, I'll hope so. Maybe not. All right. All right. Take okay. care. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. -bye. Okay, bye, -bye.